1 Samuel chapter 17 in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Sokol, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sokol and Azkah in Ephestamim. So y'all know exactly where that is. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam <laughs> and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistines and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And it is not about facing giants. It is not about facing your giants. It is not about courage in the hard times. The story before us is not about facing your fears, standing up to bullies, or battling poor self-esteem. It's not about David's giant faith either, although that's definitely in play. And it's not about faith for future fights. You may have heard some of these sermons, maybe even here. It's not about faith for future fights, as in David picking up five smooth stones. Why would he do that? Extra ammo against Goliath's four big brothers. So we can take out all five should he need to. Based on what the text actually tells us, if we take time, this is what I love about well-known stories, but not necessarily well-studied stories, is that we can discover what the Lord really intends and what he has for us. You can make all kinds of application, and the things that I just share with you, these are different applications that you'll tend to see in Christian self-help books and in sermons. Here's how you face your giants, and you look at David, and you learn these principles for facing the big struggles in your life, and that's fine, that's an application. And then there's the interpretation. We've talked about the difference. And the interpretation is simply the story before us, where it happened, who was involved, what these things actually mean. And then there's, there's the biblical application. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we're left to apply things because the Lord loves to allow us to really think it through and apply it to our lives personally. But sometimes with a story such as this, there is an application. There is an intention of the Spirit of God. And I think... Well, I'm not gonna speak for you, I'll speak for myself. I think I've missed it for years. I don't think I've preached it. I don't think I've truly recognized the actual biblical 
application of the story of David and Goliath. Goliath. But let's get some bearings as we begin. So the Elah Valley, some of you have been there. It's a lush green area of Israel's Shephelah. The Shephelah is the low plain between the mountains of of Judea and the the coastal plain. Called the Shephelah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Very green, very lush, very rich. About 15 miles due west of Jerusalem, which is more high desert. Uh, Tiny little Israel has some very definitely different uh, landscape throughout. And it's, it's remarkable to see. So the Elah Valley is, is there in the Shephelah, and, and it is a very green valley. Even, even year-round, even in the heat, it tends to yield green plants. Tel Azkah, or Azekah, is a wooded mount. So it's got trees all over it, and it's a mount that overlooks the valley. It's not a huge mountain, but it's, it's, it's pretty good size, and you can stand on top of Tel Azekah and look down over the Valley of Allah and see where all of this actually played out. It's a beautiful location. In fact, there are hiking trails all over Tel Azekah. Israelis go there on Shabbat and on holidays just to picnic and hang out and be in that place. So the Elah Valley, you've got Tel Azekah, and then across the valley, about two miles northwest, is Soko. And that, well, Soko means bushy. Now, it's raised up in a hill too, although it's a lower hill than Tel Azekah, but it means bushy, and it's a very bushy and, and again, a green area. Azekah means dug over, dug over. I'm gonna call it dug out because that's where the Israelites are this morning. They're dug out on Tel Azekah. They're actually in the high place. They're in the place that's more easily defended, the place if you're gonna be in battle here in the Valley of Allah, you wanna be on Tel Azekah because it's the higher ground. And yet they are shaken in their sandals. Excavations of Tel Azekah today show that it was many times heavily fortified for battle. And in fact, this valley region boasted many big battles. If you look at one more phrase there, ephestamim in verse one, ephestamim means edge of blood. Edge of blood. So the Philistines are in the bushy place and, and the, the, the Israelites are in the dugout on Tel Azekah and the Philistines call their location where they're encamped ready to fight, ephestamim, the edge of blood. Truly. Many battles happen there, as I said. Azekah is the same hillside where we recently read in Joshua chapter 10 that the Lord rained hailstones and routed the five Amorite armies. So this is a a, a very natural theater for battle, a basin, if you will, of, of bloody conflict. So again, the Israelites dug out at Azekah. The Philistines spread out in the bushy hedges across the valley, and there from the Philistines comes a big mouth offensive oaf who makes a bellowing stand, and his name is Goliath. And the name you know well, in Hebrew, Goliath. And Goliath means splendor, splendor. And no doubt he thought so. You can tell by his language. You can tell by his big, beefy words that he thinks he's something else. And the Bible says that he's six cubits and a span. That would be nine foot, nine inches. Now, we have skeletal evidence, not of Goliath, but of 
of a man in the 16th century who was about six feet seven or, or nine feet seven inches. We have uh, bones of giants. So this is, nine nine would not be an impossibility. Now you may have heard other things, instead of six cubits, um, Josephus says it was four cubits and, and a span, and uh, that would be more like six nine. Of course, at the time when most people were around five feet, six nine would still be pretty huge. But I'm just gonna go with the word here, go with the way it's written in scripture, uh, nine foot nine. And that is one messed up pituitary gland. <laughs> this guy just didn't stop growing. But you know what, for all of his height, haven't we already been encouraged not to, to, to pay attention to such heights of, of, of pride? Think about what the Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse seven. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. See, that's why Saul was chosen king, first king of Israel. Samuel looked at him and said, he is head and shoulders above everyone else. He looks like a king. And then Samuel comes to the sons of Yeshai, Jesse, and he sees the first one, Eliab, and he says, this guy's tall. This guy's tall like Saul. So, so wow, impressive. Don't look at his height. Don't look at his stature. And now, here comes Goliath. And honestly, he might as well be called Goldilocks for all the threat that he actually has before God, which is right now being forgotten by the Israelites. As this guy stands out here, this, this big dude shouting his, his threats and defying Israel. And think about this. So he's standing there, he's got a bronze helmet, scale armor, estimated between, the, the armor itself estimated somewhere between 78 to 120 pounds, just the armor. And then the shaft of his spear, I love how the Bible describes it like a weaver's beam. That's just the shaft. And then the spearhead itself would weigh in at 15 pounds. So this guy's well armored, and in front of him he's got this personal armor bearer hauling all the, all the defensive gear, ready, ready for a big fight. And look at this guy, and you have one big Philistine instrument of intimidation. Standing there, shouting, bellowing. Verse 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you know what? Intimidation is standard, standard operating procedure for the enemy. This is a tool that Satan has used from the beginning. Intimidation, threats, to make the people of God back away or back down. And yet, think about what he's really facing. Think about the true balance of power between one big dumb Philistine and the people of God. Who really has the high ground here? And why, if he is so awesome, is he so heavily armed? What's this oversized ogre afraid of? That he has to have his armor bearer before him and all of this chain mail and spear and sword and helmet and big words. See, that's often what happens with the enemy. Lots of bellowing, lots of noise so as to intimidate. But when you really break it down, if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? And why would we ever fear? But again, it's not about facing your giants. Enter a spirit-filled David, verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Yeshai, and he had eight sons, and Yeshai was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Yeshai had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of these are his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Eliab means God is my father, though he doesn't seem to be that faithful, so I'm just gonna call him the Godfather. Abinadab means my father is noble, and Shema means astonishment, which I think is a great name for a kid. Because then, then you're open to whatever he is gonna do, astonishment. But listen, David, does anyone know what David means? Have we ever given the, the Hebrew meaning of the name David? Beloved, beloved. His name means beloved. I, I love that. Think this through with me. As Father God said of the son of David, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew three seventeen. So even David's very name speaks of, indicates, points toward the son of David, Jesus Christ. Well, verse 14, David was the youngest, and now the three oldest, they followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. 40 is the number of trials and testing in the Bible. Trials and testing. It's not trials and testing for temptation's sake, but for proving character, proving a people, proving faithfulness. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights in the flood. Moses spent 40 years a shepherd in Midian. The children of Israel in their travels from Egypt all the way into the promised land, another 40 years and of course, you know, Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days. By the way, side note, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit typically doesn't drive. Normally, he leads. He fills, he comes alongside, he comforts, but he rarely drives. In the case of Jesus, he literally drove Jesus into the wilderness. Okay, so there's emphasis there that Jesus would be tried and tested and proven before our very eyes during those 40 days. Well, Goliath is there bellowing these things every day for 40 days, standing in the valley below, taunting and defying. And again, let me say this and, and apply this to the culture in which we live. Fearful adversaries of God and of truth love to bellow and bawl and bloviate. They love to shout. They wanna be the loudest voice on the block. And they're getting louder. Are you intimidated by it? Are, are you fearful of it? When they march with their signs and their flags and their attitudes, when they march in the night and, and, and burn cities, when they shout and scream and get all up in your face, does, does that intimidate? 
The taunting jowls of Goliath were, in this case, doing more than challenging the character of Israel. And only one young Israelite gets it. Only one seems to understand and rises to the ridicule, that being, of course, David. Now, we're getting closer to the emphasis of the story, but hold on a little longer, verse 17. Then Yeshai said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Now, this, David's been anointed already, right? And I said, when we talked about the anointing of David last week, the Bible doesn't say anointed for king. Now, we know he is pre-anointed for king, but the real issue in the anointing of David was the might of God, was the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. What was the, the pronouncement that God is with this youth? And that's true, and he's already now filled with the might of the Spirit, anointed by Samuel the prophet, and his dad is bossing him around. And he's still functioning like a servant. And that's okay. That's really what we're called to, right? Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And so David heads off. He says in verse uh, 18, bring also these 10 cuts of, uh, of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look to their welfare, the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them for Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Yeshai had commanded him and he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. So right now what you've got is both armies, nobody's fighting, but they're shouting at each other. They're just yelling back and forth. That is so ineffective. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, it is so ineffective for us to be shouting at the enemy rather than just standing in the name of God. So they're shouting, they're facing off here, Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army, and then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. Hey guys, what's up? <laughs> what's going on? As he's talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. One man versus an entire army. It's intimidation. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming to defy Israel and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And, and that's probably free of taxation, free of public service, just to live however you would like within the nation. Verse 26, then David spoke. First time David speaks in the Bible. So you might just note that in your margins. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what, what, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Oh, David, young, inexperienced, hyper David. Don't let faith get in the way of reason. This is real life after all, living God. That's fine talk for church or maybe back there at the tabernacle, but I gotta live in the real world and this is a real fight. 
And it's so easy to slip into that mindset. You know what that is? That's the voice of the soul man. The voice of the soul man. Spiritual man knows Jesus as the living God. And I love that that is David's phrase. This guy is taunting the armies of the living God. You know who the Philistines worshiped, right? Dagon. We've already seen he was here today, gone tomorrow. The, 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 the fish head god of stone, Dagon. This is the army of the living God. By the way, the Philistines also served another god. We know uh, his name was Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies or literally Lord of the Dung Beetle. Wow, that's some power right there. Lord of the Dung Beetle. That kind of worship absolutely stinks, in my opinion. <laughs> this is who they worship, and David said, he calls out the living God. We serve the living God. And the spiritual man, the spiritual woman knows this. That is, he's here and now. Right? If he's the living God, he's not past tense. And he's not only future tense, he's here and now, he's immediate, he's present, he is I am. Right? That's what he calls himself. The living God who is here and among us. There's, there's your, your threat, the Lord of the dung beetle. But when you face big taunts and threats, understand our God is the living God. Joshua chapter three, verse 10. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Gergesite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Well, he didn't say the Philistines. Psalm 84, verse two, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the Lord is the true God, that is Yahweh. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. I'll tell you what, all intimidation will fall at his indignation. There will be no more taunts or defying or threats when God ultimately does pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you, talking to the church at Thessalonica, how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living God. Not the Dagons and the Beelzebubs and the Baals and the Molechs and all those pieces of stone that can do nothing for you, you chose to serve the living God. First John chapter five, verse 20, John says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. Amen? Is he the living God of your life? Is he your living God? If someone were to hear our thoughts and, and our words, especially when we're in the midst of trouble and intimidation, would they recognize that we trusted in the living God who is immediately present? Ooh, we're getting close. Read on, verse 27. The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, thus it will be done for the man who kills him. And now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard 
when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence, literally your, your cheekiness, your cocky, David. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. <laughs> I love what David says. What have I done now? I think they've had this conversation before. What have I done now, he says. What have I done this time? He says, was it not just a question? And then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. What have I done now? <laughs> and the people answered the same thing as before. So he's asking again, now, now what's gonna happen to this guy? I'm just gonna verify here. What, what, if, if I take this guy out or if someone takes this guy out, what, what, what's the follow-up for this? I want you to notice just for a moment here the impact of the enemy on the oldest brother of David. And think about it this way. Eliab and Goliath sound the same. Eliab and Goliath are both defying David. Goliath's defying, taunting the armies of the living God, and Eliab is defying the anointed of the living God. And he's taunting his brother, and he's picking on him. The effect of the enemy on the brother. You know, um, we see that in our world. We even see that in the church, the effect of the enemy on our brothers, the effect of the enemy on our sisters, the effect of the world on our fellow Christians. And we take that effect and apply it sometimes in our relationships with other people and it ought not be that way. We are not of this world. You all have no doubt followed the, the Titanic sub-tragedy that took place. And I, I read an article, some of you may have seen this yesterday um, or, or on Friday, and, and I, I felt like this was absolutely spot on. It's actually an article written by an LA Times staff writer, which I probably wouldn't normally agree with, but, but she, she nailed it. The second most tragic thing about the story of that submarine going down and imploding and those lives being lost, the second most tragic thing is the sickening jeers on social media and the jokes that have already been emerging and the things people have said, even ripping into the people in the sub because they were wealthy enough to go down in the sub, as if their wealth had anything to do with the tragedy, other than that they were obviously there. Now, I understand that humor is often used to deal with tragedy. I have inappropriately used it many times myself, and that's no excuse for it. But this reaction, I, I, I have been amazed at the things I've heard and seen, and it's depraved. It's just depraved. I don't know another word for it. Here, here's what Jessica Galt, LA Times staff writer, said June 22nd. Like a digital tower of Babel, social media is evolving, she says, I say devolving, into an increasingly ugly and chaotic space. A repository for our worst impulses, uninspired musings, scatological humor, and ill-formed thoughts that should be kept to ourselves. It's an online mall of America, vast, vacuous, relentlessly commercial, and soul-sucking a garbage dump of vile commentary publicly aired because that's just what we do now. 
she's right. She's right. I mean, when you weigh the value of these things coming out on social media, the Titanic tragedy of that submarine and that loss of life is, is just a picture of how vile it really is. How can people talk this way? It's the influence of the enemy. It's the taunts and jeers and threats of our enemy in the same way that now Eliab, who is angered and fearful and upset by Goliath, is now taking this out on David, throwing David under the bus. Faith doesn't sound like that. And I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. Faith doesn't sound like that. I was so convicted this week just reading that article and thinking, this is not how Christians talk. If we truly trust in the living God, if we really believe in Jesus, we don't talk this way, we don't act this way, we don't treat each other this way, nor do we even treat the enemy this way, or the outsider, or the lost person. Faith doesn't taunt, it doesn't jeer, it doesn't mock, it doesn't scoff, nor does it cower at the scorn of the enemy. It doesn't fear the intimidation factor. In fact, faith is offended by this. Get that. Faith is offended by the mocking of the enemy. And David has the right perspective. David comes down and he hears all this talk. And it really sets him not back on his heels in fear, but it sets him forward in faith. This is something that the ridiculers like Goliath and Eliab do not understand. And here we come, here it is. This is what the chapter is truly all about. The key word in 1 Samuel 17 is rooted in the word harap. You might write that down, just write H-A-R-A-P, harap. The word harap in the Hebrew, we see it six times in this chapter. Six is the number of man in the Bible. Six is a very human number because it never quite gets to seven. I've told you before, the 666 that everybody fears is the number of the beast is 666 because it's just 6.66666 repeating. It never gets to seven. It's never complete. Antichrist will never be a complete man. And so the number of six is that picture of, of man not reaching completion, not reaching full sanctification in the Bible. And six times in this chapter, we hear the word harap. It's used over and over. So if we were studying in Hebrew, we'd notice that. We'd say, whoa, there's that word again. And there it is again. And there it is again. And you've already heard it several times. It's the word defy, reproach. Defy in verses 10 and 25. Reproach down in verse 26 and taunt. And then in verse 36 and in verse 45, it's, it's translated taunted, harap, which again translates defy, deride, mock, or blaspheme when it's approaching God. This is a word of blasphemous defiance that is coming out at the people of Israel and specifically at the living God, and that's what David hears in his spirit man. He doesn't hear threat and intimidation. He hears offense to the living God. He hears one defying and mocking his God. And that is offensive to David. Second Peter, turn over to Second Peter just for a moment. Second Peter chapter three. 
2 Peter 3 in your Bibles. I still haven't told you what this chapter is really about, but we're right there. We're right on the edge of it. It's not just about the taunting and jeering and defiance of Goliath. But stay with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. Do you hear what David heard then? Do you hear it today? Do you hear the mocking and the defiance and the taunting and the jeers of the enemy? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all. In the last days, mockers will come with mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. We've been here four and a half billion years, says the evolutionist. Nothing's changed. By the way, he's wrong, but that's another topic. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, that is, he created, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, things haven't remained the same since the beginning. If you look back 6,000 years, which I believe is much more, much closer to the actual age of the earth, if you look back 6,000 years, what you recognize is that very quickly, in the eighth generation, after Adam and Eve came the flood, and the world was wiped out, and all has not remained the same as it was from the very beginning. Very quickly, judgment came, and judgment is going to come again. Peter says, verse seven, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day, it's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. How many days did God create the world in? Six, and then he rested on the seventh. Let's not put God to work on the seventh day. Six days, 6,000 years. The seventh day, a day of rest, the seventh thousand year, which I believe is before us, the time of rest in the kingdom. The parallels are, are pretty interesting and I think worthy of considering this morning because while mockers will come with their mocking, Peter says, the Lord is not slow, verse nine, about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And it is amazing to me, we, we talked about the rapture several weeks ago now. Um, we spent several Wednesday nights talking about the rapture of the church. What's really interesting to me is, and I think we talked about it then, that with the, the advent of the Left Behind series in the 90s, everybody was talking about the rapture. Everybody, and, and, and it was a real stirring up. Does the Bible really say that, really? Is that, what, is that possible that this could happen? And a lot of people actually came to faith reading that that fiction uh, book series based on the truth of scripture. And it was very interesting and stirred up time. And I remember, <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest here, I remember reading it going, oh no, now everyone's gonna know. <laughs> and then realizing what I'm thinking and saying, and praise the Lord. <laughs> because sometimes we can get a little, you know, 
navel-gazing in the church and think it's just, this is our little secret. No, it's not supposed to be a secret. But I, I do remember in the 90s going, well, Peter said the last days mockers will come with their mocking. And right now, people aren't mocking. Right now, they're into it. And I thought at the time, so I guess Jesus isn't coming in the 90s. I was right. <laughs> so here we are, and, and the mocking has just gone off the charts, and people laugh at the idea of a rapture and of a catching up of a church and of Jesus coming back. And I do remember the first time I saw a newscast where someone actually started making fun of the word the rapture, and it was on a, a normal news network. And I thought, up oh, there it is. Mockers with their mocking, here they come. My friends, mocking is the thick accent of the enemy's speech. It's what he does, and it's part of the intimidation factor. But listen, no matter how great, how intimidating, or even how threatening the enemy may seem, the main idea of the story of David and Goliath is this. Write it down, get this, and understand. This is what it's all about, the glory and honor of Yahweh. 1 Samuel 17 is about the glory and the honor of God. That's the point. Not the courage of David, not how-to. Now, you can take it as a how-to, that's fine, but that is not the biblical point of this story in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The glory and the honor of Yahweh. We've talked a lot about this recently, that when my eyes are on Yahweh, when I'm looking to Jesus, when I have a life that truly is Christ-centered, the threats of the enemies and the intimidation doesn't work. It, it doesn't hold up. Because I am focused on his glory and on his honor. When I focus on my own honor or glory or my own righteousness or faithfulness or my own choices and lifestyle, I, I'm gonna be in trouble. It's gonna fall. When I'm focused on the honor of God, that's, that's, where, that's where I'm strong. I'm weak, he's strong. And in my weakness, as I honor him, I recognize his great strength. Listen, the enemy, big or small, may taunt you personally, may deride God's people, may mock the church generically, but it is the honor of the Lord that is at stake, both here in the story and in the world and in all history. Do you realize that that's ultimately the point? The glory of the Lord is what's at stake. Your salvation, my salvation, are only unto the glory of the Lord, about the glory of a God who makes a promise and sees it through, even if it means by death on a cross. The glory of the Lord is what matters. Psalm 18, verse three, David writes, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Why? Because I'm honoring God rather than looking at the enemy. I'm not facing giants, I'm facing God. And I'm worshiping him. First Chronicles 16, 28. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Or Revelation 4, 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, 
And because of your will, they existed and were created. We even sing the song, the battle belongs to him, right? And we sing it joyfully and we love the tune. So why do we sometimes cower in the dugouts of our soul? Why do we shrink back when the enemy is mocking and when the people are jeering? And what has Goliath really been doing in chapter 17 here? Mocking Yahweh. Defying the Lord's army in Israel. Verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul and he sent for him. That's interesting. This, this boy, this shepherd boy, is speaking words of courage and, and it gets back to Saul's ear. Why does Saul send for him? Because this is the first man in Israel who says, I'll do it. I'll fight him. Interesting, Saul himself won't. He's the tallest guy in the, in the company, but he's not gonna go fight the, the, the giant. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go forth or will go and fight with this Philistine. And then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. And I went out after him and attacked him and rescued from his mouth and when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David's not being cocky here. Stay with him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Oh, my. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And then David says it. I love David. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me literally from the paw of the Philistine. The same word is yod, and it's actually the word that means hand, but in this case, paw, and so he's, he's playing off of the one who delivered me from the lion's hand and the bear's hand is gonna deliver me from the Philistine's hand. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you, you know, religiously. This is Saul's answer. But wait a minute. Goliath here is taunting Israel, not God, right? I mean, if you really look at the wording in the chapter, it says, I defy the armies of Israel. I defy the armies of, of your God. He's not really taunting God, is he? He absolutely is taunting God. Saul was breathing murderous threats against the church. He was going out and arresting people and seeing to their executions and seeing them thrown in prison and, and the church was intimidated and somewhat fearful of this guy named Saul in the first century until Acts chapter nine, verse three, which says he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You persecute God's people, you're persecuting God. You mock God's people, you are mocking God because it is their faith in the living God that makes them a people. He is the whole point of the people. So deride his people, deride his name because wonderfully he has attached his name to us. 
Isaiah 48, verse 10, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God attached his name to Israel. God attached his name to the church. Acts eleven twenty six. 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Understand that by wearing the name Christian, by bearing the name of Christ, when you are mocked, it is Jesus who is mocked. When someone comes at you with, with threats and intimidation, they're coming at Jesus. I'm just a servant of his. 1 Peter 4, 16 says, and if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name because it's about the glory of God. It is about honoring God. And what David gets and what we must know is that this is not about us. No giant trouble is ever about us. It's not about you. In my life, I've got all these, these trials and, and troubles and difficulties, and you know, barring the fact that sometimes our sin asks for it, when hard times come against you, it's not against you. The hard times are against the glory of God. And that, that kind of perspective changes everything. That kind of perspective turns me to faith rather than to fear. Fear of the Lord, but not the fear of man. Faith in God. Watch this, verse 38. Well, then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. Can you imagine this? Can you see it? David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Hang on a second. In your picture of David putting this stuff on, do you see a little kid putting on his dad's armor? That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's untested. It doesn't say it doesn't fit. It says it's untested. It is unfamiliar to David. The suit of the soul man did not fit the spiritual man. It didn't work for him. It wasn't tested or tried by him. It wasn't too, that it was too big or too heavy. That's Sunday school theology. And it, and it comes up short. The word is lo nachsa, which means not tested or unproven. David put it on and he starts to kind of wield the sword and he goes, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not used to fighting with this. I don't know how to use this. It's cumbersome, it's experimental. It's like a self-help book for a Christian. Somebody else's idea of how I am supposed to deal with trials and troubles and difficulties in life. I'm gonna borrow off of this person when I have a sword that I'm used to. When I have a weapon that I, I, I have learned how to rightly handle. When I have prayer to the living God, I'm gonna trust the words of, of some dude. That's, that's the unfamiliar armor of the world and sometimes even in the church. You know, we get these self-help booklets or, or we get these, these, these programs or these teachings, these ideas, and, and it's like, okay, that, that's someone else's armor. What we're talking about here is God's armor for you and it looks like faith. It's his word, it's prayer. This is the stuff that we are called to be familiar with. What had the Lord already given to David that, that he knew? 
1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. By the way, I just heard about this from Cam on Friday. I went and looked it up. I couldn't believe it. Have you heard about AI Jesus? AI Jesus, now streaming on Twitch. Ask underscore Jesus is a chat bot on the streaming service on, on Twitch. And you can type into this chat bot, AI Jesus, you can type in questions on life, on gaming. Twitch is primarily a, gaming, a gamer streaming platform. And you can, you can type in questions for AI Jesus. Ask Jesus about relationships and, and again, gaming, life, anything you want. And AI Jesus, a chat bot, is gonna answer and is learning as it answers. And it says at, at, at ask underscore Jesus, it says that these are answers with wisdom based on Jesus' teachings. Uh-uh, it's not. It, it, I already led, I read several things. It's loosely based. It's, it's, it talks about someone asked, what's the purpose of life? The purpose of life is, is to love people and to live better. And I'm like, the purpose of life is to honor God. That's the purpose of life. That's what Jesus would say. Not, not to, to you know, be loving. See, the problem is we have this worldly definition of loving that is not the love of God. The love of God is fierce. The love of God is absolute grace and absolute righteousness, total justice and truth and total grace and mercy in a way that human love cannot approach unless we start to pattern ourselves after the agape of God. And, and, and this, so this AI Jesus, I, I read this and I thought, this is, this, is, this is bad news. Aside from being gravely problematic by wrong interpretations and loose, whitewashed interpretations, Jesus invites us to come to him, not to askjesus.com, not to some chatbot that doesn't know anything but what it gathers from from loosely the teachings of Jesus, but also from the questions that are asked of it, it's going to begin to come up with different answers to meet the needs of the people rather than speaking the truth. And, and this is what's out there. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Stop looking for the armor that the world provides. You're not used to that stuff. It will not fit you. It will not serve you well in battle. The spirit of the living God has been given to us, and we come to Jesus himself. So verse 40, he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. Do you realize what he's doing? He is dressing himself as a shepherd. He has his shepherd's staff. We don't talk a lot about the shepherd's staff, but the Bible says thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. Why? Because the shepherd uses the staff to both lead and to protect the sheep. So David's got his stick his staff, and he chooses them for himself, those five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What a joke by the world's standards. There is nothing military about David right now. Shepherd's staff, shepherd's bag, which by the way is European, so it's not really a purse. 
shepherd's staff, his bag, and his sling. He's ready to go out and protect the sheep. And there stands Goliath in all of his array. You know what? The shepherd boy knew his sling. And by the way, don't underestimate the sling. Granted, this is all about the power of God and even the aim and what's gonna take place, what you know happens in the story. It is all about the glory of God. And yet, a sling, throwing a stone two to three inches in diameter, and that would be about the average side, that stone, slung by a sling, can fly upwards of 100 to 150 miles an hour. So if you know how to use one of those things, I remember Roni tells the story about being uh, there in the Valley of Allah with Chuck Smith. And he said, we got down there, we got out of the bus, you know, Roni's talking, we got out of the bus, and Chuck was there, and he pulled out a sling, and I thought, oh no. <laughs> and Chuck picks up some rocks, picked up five smooth stones, and he puts a rock in the sling, and Roni said, I said to him, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, fling a rock here. He said, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, because this is Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel. There's like 150 people out there like he's gonna miss one of their foreheads. <laughs> and I said, what happened? And he said, well, you put the stone in the sling and, and he actually hit a tree. I was very impressed. <laughs> so the stone in the sling, is, 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 that's a good weapon. I, I, was, I was in Little League, minor B Cubs. We had yellow hats with a big C on it, really cool. And our pitcher took a line drive to the noggin by a kid who hit the ball. And that ball was probably going 30, 40 miles an hour. I don't know, not that fast, but it hit this guy in the head and knocked him cold. And I'll never forget that. He just went down. And we all ran over. Because up until then, I thought of the baseball as relatively soft. But I saw that, and that was my last game. I said, no more, I'm out of here. I'm not gonna, not gonna play this anymore. The point is, it's not swords and it's not spears, and it's not even slings or stones that's of concern here. It's the honor, the reputation, and the glory of the God of Israel, the living God. Verse 41, and the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Now, if I had been David, I would have said, yes. <laughs> and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Made by Dagon, I curse you. By Beelzebub. <laughs> Lord of the dung beetle? Okay, that's great. And the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come to you with a mighty sling. No, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. And there it is. This is why David's back is up, because of the taunting of the living God, because of the jeers and the mocking of Yahweh, the God of all glory. He says, this day the Lord, Yahweh, will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Pause there. How do you remove someone's head with a sling? Or a stick? He doesn't have anything sharp with him. So David is expecting not only to knock this guy cold, but to use his sword. David's, you know, there, there's a plan in place here. David's gonna take this guy's head off. 
and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spirit, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And there again is that word taunted. Taunted in verse 45, harap. And this is the point of the story. Listen, if we focus on David's courage, hey, he beat a bear, he licked a lion. I mean, not like licked, but licked. You know, he, he beat, he won. If we look at David, we miss the whole point of the whole thing. Which again, back in verse 37, the Lord the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. The Lord will do it. In the Old West, an old dog was seen limping down the street, a little cowboy hat on his head cocked to one side. And he limps his way into a saloon the door's swinging behind him. He limps all the way up to the bar counter. And he says, I'm looking for the guy who shot my paw. <laughs> the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion, the bear, and the, I, I have been waiting to share that one. I love it. I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. David, in defense of the sheep of Israel, he knew the faithfulness of God. What perspective? What perspective? See, David looks back in faith that he might look forward in faith. That is such a way to be encouraged and to keep your eyes on the glory of God. There are old battles you've forgotten about, old victories, old glories of the Lord in your life and we look back to those that we might look forward in the battles that we face right now. We see his glory then that we might know his glory now. And this is what David is doing. In verse 48, it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He doesn't even pause. He just takes off running with his little shepherd's staff and his little bag and his five smooth stones in his sling, and David put his hand into his bag, verse 49, and he took from it a stone and slung and struck the Philistine on his forehead. I love the Bible, so descriptive. The stone sank into his forehead. It wasn't just like, boink, it was boom. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, just for a moment, to the glory of God, the look on Goliath's face. And he fell on his face boom, to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in his hand. So David ran and took the Philistine, or stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. So when Goliath went down, it knocks him down, perhaps knocks him out cold, but this body is still heaving with breath, and so David finishes him off with his own sword. I love that. He takes the sword of the enemy to kill the enemy. 
He uses the sword of the enemy to kill the enemy. Now, now we have 48 verses of intro and then four verses of the battle. It's kind of anticlimactic, you know? I mean, if Peter Jackson were writing it, it'd be the other way around, you know? Or actually, it'd be 48 verses of intro and then 148 of the, of the battle. I mean, you know, the battle's the thing, right? No, no. It comes and goes so quickly. Besides, you all knew how it was gonna end. But I love that David uses the sword of the enemy to kill the enemy. I will strike you down, he said in verse 46, and remove your head from you. And just as David uses the enemy's sword to cut off his head, so the son of David did the same thing. The cross, the weapon of the enemy, it became the weapon of the enemy's demise. The cross is what Jesus used to kill the enemy, to take him down. Genesis 3.15 says, he shall bruise you on the head. God is speaking to the serpent. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. But that word bruise is yeshup, and it literally means to break, to snap, or to cut off. He's gonna cut off your head. You're gonna cut at his heel. And the same instrument that cut the heels of Jesus as the nails went through his feet into the cross of wood, that same instrument disarmed the devil, cut off his, his arms and legs, left him headless. Where death is concerned, Satan is headless. He cannot. What's the worst he can do? Jesus said, worst he can do, Matthew chapter 10. You know, kill the body, okay. Can't kill the soul. Only God's got that power. Can't kill the spirit, that, that belongs to the Lord. Because the battle belongs to the Lord, because the glory belongs to the Lord. And remember then, again, in verse 46, David prophesied. This is a prophecy, I'm gonna cut your head off. He speaks it beforehand, and then he does it. The decapitation of Goliath, why? That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. And all the earth will know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, this story is about the honor of God. It is Yahweh's honor at stake. And that matters to David more than anything else. The honor and the glory of God. Does the reputation of Jesus matter most to you? Is it enough that you would risk your life for it? Does it matter enough to you that you would risk your reputation for it? Maybe I should ask that question. Are you willing to risk your own reputation for the reputation of God? Galatians chapter one, verse six. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As I have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be cursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. 
Whose honor is at stake in your life, yours or his? Too many Christians, perhaps some here today, I don't know, too many Christians spend more time questioning God's honor than believing it. Doubting God's glory than trusting in him for it. It is not about facing your giants. It's about, again, facing your God with reverence, with honor, with faith because of who he is. Verse 52, well, the men of Israel, I get, well, the Philistines saw this. He cut off his head and the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. Verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron, Philistine city. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'araim, even to Gath and Ekron. Sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundering their camp. And then David, <laughs> David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. That must have been a fun walk. 15 miles on back to Jerusalem, you know. It'll be 17 plus years before David conquers Jerusalem. But he takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Why? Why did he haul the big head there? Uh, oh, oh, it must have been, you know, <laughs> Jerusalem self-storage was available so he could, you know, <laughs> deposit the head. Listen, the stronghold of Zion is going to be victoriously captured, but I think David already had his eye on the city. I think he's already thinking, already looking ahead, maybe already indicated in his spirit man prophetically, this is gonna belong to God too. This is going to be the city of the great king. And so he hauls the head over there. Do you already have your eye on the city? Are you looking ahead to the city victoriously coming? You know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters, I saw the holy city, Revelation 21, verse two, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Have you deposited the head of the enemy at new Jerusalem knowing the battle is the Lord's? Do you live that way, looking ahead, living to the glory of God and looking ahead to the great city that he has promised? Do you know with victorious certainty you're gonna be there? You're gonna stand in new Jerusalem one day. That's faith. And it's faith looking ahead because when we look back, we see the glory of God. Well, I haven't seen the glory of God in the last five years of my life. Okay, look further back. Well, my entire life has not been very glorious. Well, okay, then look back further. If you need to, look back to the cross and see the glory of God there and know by faith, new Jerusalem is coming. That's what allows us to live with victorious certainty. Again, it's not the five points of, of facing your giants. It's the glory of God. The promise of his coming, the certainty of our future with him when he will be our king in that place. 
Goliath came mocking, and that big mouth ended up gaping in silence. <laughs> because David came honoring God. Because the one issue at stake for David was the glory of God, not even the glory of Israel, not even the glory of his own name. It was the glory of God. So how can I start living my life to honor him? Let me give you three points, real quick. Three conclusive points. Number one, jot this down, note this. God is honored in my worship. God is honored in my worship. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but this is something David knew before he ever went out to battle. It's something David understood. Israel's greatest warrior king was at heart a worshiper. We see that in the Psalms. We even recognize Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth was likely written by David in the hills of Bethlehem as a boy. He was a worshiper. He was worshiping in Saul's court. He was playing the harp to soothe the king long before this battle took place. Psalm 24, verse seven, David wrote, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And because David worshiped beforehand, he was able to fight at hand. So, God is honored in my worship. Don't disdain the worship of the living God. Well, I don't like those songs. Well, that's why we have several worship leaders, so you can find one you like, okay? It's irrelevant. The style, the volume, the, 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 that, all that stuff, that's not relevant. What's relevant is the glory of the Lord. And if you would focus your heart in and upon worshiping him, you will be more prepared to fight the battle when it comes. God is honored in my worship. God is honored, secondly, in my weakness. In my weakness. His brother called him cocky, Saul called him green, and Goliath saw him as a ruddy runt. And you know what? David was all three. And yet, it was in the weakness of David and in the inadequacy of David, that, that's what best, I, okay, I wanna say this really clearly to you because some of you here are, are not sure about this yet. Our weaknesses and our inadequacies are what best qualify us to defend the living God. Do you, do you understand that? It is not being some powerful theologian. It's not, man, if I can just get 10 years of Christian experience under my belt, then. No, it's now in your weakness that God is glorified. It's when you know nothing, but you're gonna trust in him anyway that you honor his name. God is honored in my weakness. That's where I best defend him. Psalm 33, 16, the king is not saved by a mighty armor. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his grace or loving kindness. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. That's Jesus speaking. And Paul said, most gladly therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, we might say with giants. I am well content for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God is honored in my worship. God is honored in my weakness. And finally, lastly, God is honored in my willingness to esteem his name above all others. He is honored in my willingness to esteem his name, to glorify his name above all other names, starting with my name. I mean, that's a good, that's a good starting place for all of us. Just esteem him above yourself. And you'll find it's easier and easier just to esteem him above all others. David said to the giant, he said, I come to you in the name of Yahweh of armies. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And so we go in the name of Jesus, honoring God because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus. So Father, this morning we look at the story once again, familiar to so many of us, but we do so recognizing your honor, recognizing the wonder of the moment is the glory of the Lord. And you glorified yourself then through David. Oh, God, be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our worship. Be glorified, Lord Jesus, in our weakness and be glorified simply by causing us to be willing to lift up your name above all others. Be glorified, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 